Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. In an article for the Financial Times last year, journalist Martin Sambu announced the return of class conflict as a central theme for economics. According to Sanbu, every downturn rekindles interest in John Maynard Keynes. This one should call attention to Michael Kaletsky. Kaletsky is best remembered today for his celebrated essay on the politics of full employment, which has lost none of its topical value. Our guest today is Jan Toporowski. He's a professor of economics at SOAS in London and the author of a two-volume intellectual biography of Michael Kaletsky. The name of Michael Kaletsky is often linked with that of John Maynard Keynes, but the social and political backgrounds from which they came were quite radically different. What was the environment in Poland that shaped Kaletsky? Well, the environment in, in Poland in his childhood and in his youth was essentially one of economic instability and nationalism and anti-Semitism. His father was a, a factory owner, but in the city of Łódź. Now, Łódź was a, a major industrial centre for the Russian Empire. And in 1905, it was one of the centres for revolutionary activity in the, of the 1905 revolution. And that ruined the business that Kaletsky's father ran, a uh, textile business and plunged Woods into a kind of 10-year, longer than that, about a 12-, 13-year period of disorder. The place was rife with conspiracies, whether it was the, the socialists who were agitating for socialism and trade union rights, and a faction of them which were which thought that these were best obtained if Poland became independent. A group of nationalists who believed that Poland's interests were best served by becoming independent under the tutelage within a an alliance with Russia. And they were fiercely opposed, the nationalists were fiercely opposed to the socialists and they uh, uh, in particular the fact that the largest grouping uh, socialist grouping was the Jewish Bund uh, the Jewish Bund were, uh, was a trade union come political party but it was essentially the largest socialist bloc in Poland at that time and the nationalists started an anti-Semitic campaign of boycotting Jewish shops and Jewish businesses. So there was all this in the pot, on top of which there were various religious groups which were uh, fighting, not literally fighting, but they were being denounced by the the established churches. The Mariavites were uh, an offshoot of the Catholic Church, they were denounced by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was distrusted by the Orthodox Church, which actually only served the Russian aristocracy. So, And on top of all this was the total collapse of the economy, followed after 1915 by when the Germans took over control. They, they started removing all the 
uh, all the machinery and equipment. I think it's this kind of background that gave rise to Keynes's famous comment in uh, Economic Consequences of the Peace that Poland is an economic impossibility whose only industry is Jew-baiting. And I once, uh, I mentioned this once to Mrs. Kalecki and uh, she thought thought this was a most profound insight and she had me write this out, chapter and verse, and where it came from uh, in Keynes's book. <laughs> so, they, I, I mean, this was essentially uh, the problem. Although Keynes did, Keynes realised that the, he had preceded it with a remark that unless Germany and Russia are stable, then Poland is an economic impossibility, using only industries jubating. So, independence made Poland dependent on the stability of German, uh, of markets in Germany and markets in Russia. Uh, and, of course, after the First World War, uh, there, there was, of course, the civil war in Russia, the rise of, uh, of Weimar, and then Poland was hit by the 1929 crash. So it, it really a, very, a, a most unstable and volatile situation, and personally and politically volatile as well. What was the significance of his encounter with Oscar Lange? Well, they, they, uh, he met Oscar Lange, I think, at the end of the 1920s. Interestingly enough, both of them at that time were working on the business cycle. But Lange was clearly uh, much more dedicated to academic economics and the dominant school in Polish academic economics, which was a, a neoclassical school, and uh, so Lange was always dedicated to the to this idea that market forces would bring the system to equilibrium if only market forces were allowed to work properly. Kalitsky was actually rooted elsewhere. He was rooted in business and financial journalism. This was how he got by after uh, after he had to abandon his studies. So he knew he had a great feel for uh, how business was conducted. But Lange's circle and its journal, Treglond Socialistischne, gave Kalecki an opportunity to bring together the, the politics with the economics of the great crisis of 1929 or after 1929. So the meeting with Lange gave him scope to combine all this in, in his uh, his own political economy, which was rather different from that of Lange. Lange, to the end, thought that Kalecki's, uh, or until he, Lange died, he thought that Kalecki's was an interesting model, but he, he didn't realise that behind it was a really a very pro- much more profound understanding of how business, how capitalist business operates. What were the conditions in Poland during the interwar period that made it necessary for both Lange and Kalecki to leave the country? Well, uh, more or less the <laughs> similar factors that uh, uh, wrecked Kalecki's father's business. It was uh, nationalism and anti-Semitism. But added to this was 
the uh, repression of the political opposition. Poland, by uh, the time they left Poland, uh, Lange left Poland in 1934-1935, Kalecki left Poland in 1936. And in 1926, Poland had succumbed to a military coup. And interestingly enough, it was a military coup that was supported by the left because it was to prevent uh, the assumption of power by a nationalist government. And that nationalist government said that they were going to follow sensible uh, a sensible program of national development. But after economic conditions deteriorated after 1930, from 1930 onwards, it became a, a much more brutal uh, regime you know, the floor of the parliament was invaded. Opposition MPs were beaten up. They, uh, the, the opposition leaders were then interned without trial. People, uh, there were more and more incidents of attacks on Jews and national minorities. The government styled itself much, much more explicitly on the regime in Italy, which uh, they believed was solving the economic problems uh, much more effectively than uh, the ineffectual bourgeois democracies. The following clip comes from a classic documentary series, The Struggles for Poland. It covers the final ominous period of the Pilsudski era. Pilsudski would not suffer any challenge to his leadership. In 1934, as a new generation of nationalists set up a Polish fascist movement, Pilsudski approved the opening of an internment camp in Bereza Kartuska, where fascists, Ukrainian nationalists and communists were imprisoned without trial. When we arrived, they told us very simply the aim of Bereza. All of you here, Ukrainians and Poles, do not respect the state. A symbol of the state is the policeman. We will teach you to respect the state by arousing your respect for the police. Because you have not acquired this respect in the normal way, we will instill it into you by force. Pilsudski remained the only source of real authority. Though he was now rarely seen in public, everything was done in his name. In failing health, the marshal became an eccentric recluse. He saw few people, talked loudly to himself, became foul-mouthed and abusive. Stories circulated about his interest in spiritualism and the supernatural, about Russian ghosts roaming the Belvedere Palace and disturbing his sleep. His recurrent nightmare was the fate of Poland after his death. One night, an aide heard the marshal's voice and ran into the bedroom. How are you feeling, commander? And he looked at him and said, do you know what will happen when I am not here? Who can stand against that which awaits Poland? Who will find the force which I still possess? and he spread his arms in despair. This made conditions very, very difficult for people on the left, and in particular Langer, 
and Kalecki Langer wasn't Jewish. Kalecki was Jewish. Langer, incidentally, was always suspected of being Jewish because he was uh, he was multilingual. He was a polyglot, and uh, at one time he'd apparently learned Yiddish. There's a long story behind this. He'd learned Yiddish, and this is what gave rise to a rumour that uh, Langer was Jewish and therefore not properly Catholic. Bashi Langer was of uh, of German Protestant uh, origin, but they they left under the uh, program of the Rockefeller uh, Foundation. The Rockefeller Foundation at that time was uh, following uh, policies which were very sympathetic to democratic forces around uh, the world, and there was a realization that things were getting very, very difficult for leftists in Central and Eastern Europe, in particular following the rise to power of Hitler. And uh, Langer uh, was given a a fellowship to get out, and in 1930s, he was followed by uh, Kalecki. So that, that more or less saved their lives because they, Kurtzky was Jewish, she wouldn't have survived what happened in Poland, the Holocaust. In 1931, two years after the Wall Street crash, John Maynard Keynes addressed the British people. He welcomed Britain's exit from the gold standard, which he described as a gold cage for the national economy. It was the beginning of a turn away from economic orthodoxy. There really seems to be some providence which watches over this country. Two months ago, we were in an impossible position. For years past, our industry had been strangled by the exchange value of our money being too high, with the inevitable result that the cost of our goods was also too high for foreign markets. But how on earth were we to get loose in an honourable way? For our bankers, who had accepted foreign money at a high exchange value, felt that it would be wrong for us to change the value of our money voluntarily. As events have turned out, the change has been forced on us under circumstances extraordinarily fortunate and favourable. We have nothing to fear, honestly nothing. So often, in the past ten years, I have had to prophesy evil, but now a great weight is lifted from us, a great tension relieved. There's no danger of the exchange falling too far. There's no danger of a serious rise in the cost of living. The worst I should expect would be a return to the prices of some two years ago. But meanwhile, British trade will have received an enormous stimulus, much more than most of us have yet realised. It is a wonderful thing for our businessmen and our manufacturers and our unemployed to taste hope again. But they must not allow anyone to put them back in the gold cage where they have been pining their hearts out all these years. What were the key ideas that Kalecki and Keynes contributed to what became known as the Keynesian Revolution? Well, this is something uh, which is disputed among Keynesians and post-Keynesians, and even you know 
Keynesians and post-Keynesians sympathetic or more sympathetic to Kalecki. It's, it's made problematic. I mean, I think all Keynesians agree that aggregate demand, a problem of aggregate demand in capitalism uh, was common to both of them. But the real key issue was that it was aggregate demand in the form of underinvestment. This is very clear in Kalitsky's. Kalitsky wrote uh, a review of Keynes's general theory in 1936. It was uh, uh, it wasn't published until. Oh, it wasn't published in English until ninety uh, until the nineteen eighties, but essentially pointing out that the essence of Keynes's theory was not under consumption, but under investment, and it was something which Keynes himself acknowledged, but he didn't put it in the in his general theory. He made it uh, explicit in a talk which he gave for the BBC later published in the Listener magazine called Poverty in Plenty. And in Poverty in Plenty, he pointed out that you know, his sympathies were with all the theorists who said that there was insufficient aggregate demand. I mean, people like Sismondi, um, Veblen, a lot of theorists on the left, but that he had his difference with them, and that was that they... Uh, they believed that the problem in capitalism was insufficient consumption. And in many respects, this was obvious because you just had to look at the poverty that was common in capitalism that was spreading during the 1930s. But Keynes said, yes, there is poverty, but at the heart of this is insufficient investment. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because it's the link with Marx's view of what's the driving force in capitalism, which is the accumulation of capital, and the theory of profits that is in Marx and Kalecki. Actually, it's also in Keynes, but uh, again, Keynes didn't mention it in, in, in the general theory. This is the idea that as long as capitalists are spending money on their own consumption, and on investment, then they are actually the money that they spend comes back to their pockets as profits. It's the, the profits theory of, uh, of Marx and Kalecki. Kalecki uh, getting it via uh, Rosa Luxemburg and her book, The Accumulation of Capital which Kalecki had read. Kalecki, Kalecki didn't really read that much, but he he tended to read what was useful for his theories. So he, uh, yes, he read Marx, he read Luxembourg. Not much, uh, didn't steep himself really in, uh, in economic theory, unlike Langer, unlike Langer. How did the economic thought of Kalecki differ from the ideas that were commonplace among the Marxists of his own time, whether or not those views were strongly grounded in the work of Marx himself? Well, this is the curious differences in the economic theory of the left. The Marxists of that time, and still to a great extent today, 
followed Marx's, uh, after Marx had written Capital, he wrote about crises and wrote about the problems of, uh, of unemployment and crisis, but using this idea that, of course, in crisis, what becomes very obvious is the poverty and underconsumption uh, of the working class. And this was followed in the 20th century by Varga, Sweezy, really most of the uh, Marxists. The book that's most easily available and expresses this is Sweezy's book, The Theory of Capitalist Development, which came out in 1942, in which he argued that the fundamental problem in, in capitalism is that the capitalists do not uh, you know, pay the workers the full value of their labour. And therefore, there's a problem of uh, realising profits. And uh, this problem of realising profits can be resolved by raising wages. A paradoxical conclusion because of course if capitalists raise wages then they're raising their costs and um, this was pointed out incidentally by Joseph Steindl. Steindl was one of Kalitsky's uh, followers. He said well you, you know how can you realize more profit by raising your costs? You can't. But of course if you take the view that was put forward by Kaletsky uh, following Rosa Luxemburg that the way in which profits are realised is through the expenditure of capitalists on investment and their own consumption, which in effect is what Marx says, then it becomes much clearer. You, you get away from this confusion, the confusion which comes with believing that because the poverty of the working class is a feature of crisis and capitalist stagnation doesn't mean that the underconsumption is the cause of that poverty and that uh, economic stagnation. As the Great Depression worsened, political forces began to call for a new way of managing capitalist economies. Franklin Roosevelt didn't shy away from the language of class when he defended the reforms of the New Deal. In the working out of a great national program that seeks the primary good of the greater number, it is true that the toes of some people are being stepped on and are going to be stepped on. But these toes belong to the comparative few who seek to retain or to gain position or riches or both by some shortcut that is harmful to the greater good. In the British election campaign of 1945, the Labour leader Clement Attlee also depicted his party's opponents as the voice of class privilege. You have only to run through the list of Conservative members in the House of Commons and of their candidates standing for the safer seats to see that they belong to two classes only, those who are born rich and those who have achieved riches. You would look in vain for anyone 
from the wage-earning classes. The nearest approach to it will be someone who in his remote youth worked for a weekly wage. Labour puts first things first. Security from war, food, houses, clothing, employment, leisure and social security for all must come before the claims of the few for more rent, interest and profit. We have shown that we can organise the resources of the country to win the war. We can do the same in peace. What did Kaletsky believe that governments had to do in order to create full employment and what social and political consequences did he expect to follow from that? Well, Kaletsky, in the first instance, he thought that there was not much scope for encouraging uh, private investment. He thought, you know, he dismissed the idea that had been put forward by Tugan Baranovsky that capitalists uh, would always invest in such a way as to be able to maintain profits, but uh, although not the rate of profit taken as a share of the capital stock. Uh, he didn't think that the, that you could encourage private investment through tax policies, through tax subsidies, or lowering the rate of in, uh, interest. He, you know, if you did that, you'd have to keep on doing it more and more, and you know, finally it would uh, it just wouldn't be worth it, and and you might not get a response from the capitalists. The capitalists would invest however much they wanted. The the real scope for creating full employment is in the redistribution of incomes through what Kaletsky called subsidised consumption. In other words, provision of public services, education, health, welfare payments, and to some degree public works. But he was sceptical of public works. Public works are a kind of conservative Keynesianism. If you uh, if if you look at the the type of Keynesianism that's uh, fostered by uh, right wing regimes, it's usually of the sort of public work variety. They're not going to sp- uh, they don't want to spend the money on uh, health, education, or welfare. Whereas Kalitsky thought that they that's precisely what what money should be spent on. Plus, Kalitsky thought that you should have higher taxes on the wealthy. And uh, he argued that this was a very simple argument why this was an appropriate and an efficient form of taxation. Because if you tax the rich, they won't notice the difference. They'll still maintain their, their standards of consumption and they'll get the money back anyhow because the when the... The nurses and the the doctors that you employ and the teachers that you employ spend their money. Who's going to get that money? Well, the money will go back to the capitalists in any case. So higher taxes on the wealthy are simply a way of churning the money of the rich to ensure that they that it's spent and not as uh, as there is a tendency among the rich, which is uh, simply to uh, to hold on to liquid assets, as we can see in in America today, in and Britain as well, hold on to liquid assets and not spend it 
as much as is needed to maintain high employment, high or full employment. Did Kolecki believe that full employment was compatible in the long run with the capitalist economy? Uh, No, not really, because he thought that there would always be resistance from the capitalists, in particular big business, big business which has a disproportionate political influence and big business would resist uh, full employment because it would undermine, it would tend to undermine the, the discipline of work, the work discipline in the factories. So at the same time, if you did get high employment, there would be a growing confidence of the working class and this would precipitate a political struggle over full employment and a political struggle over the influence of the workers and workers' organisations within society. So you, you, you had this phenomenon, uh, certainly in the, in the post-war period, when there were high levels of employment, workers' organisations were consulted over government policy. With mass unemployment, you don't need to consult the workers. Uh, the workers will do what employers tell them to do because they need the jobs, because of the fear of unemployment. So full employment, Kalitsky thought, would precipitate a political struggle over not only full employment, which the capitalists would denounce as inflationary and unsound and uh, undermining uh, business confidence, but also because full employment would tend to strengthen the working class organisations, which would be sympathetic to the influence of workers in society and effectively sympathetic to socialism. In the 1970s, a political backlash against the strength of organised labour was accompanied by an intellectual backlash against the ideas of Keynes and his disciples. One of the most forceful advocates of this new way of thinking was the economist Milton Friedman. There is hardly any view that is more widespread than the view that somehow or other the Great Depression was produced by a failure of private business. That view is held not only by those who are in favor of greater role of government. It is held by almost everybody. I venture to suggest that if you go to any bankers, the people who are here today at this banking conference, and if you talk to them, nine out of ten of them would say, well, of course, the Great Depression was a failure of private business. It was due to an overextension, overspeculation in the 1920s, or it was due to an excessive concentration of wealth in the hands of the wealthy at the expense of the poor in the 1920s, or it was due to speculative investment abroad, or whatnot. But it was a failure of private business. And government had to step in in order to rescue private business from its own failure. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The Great Depression was produced, in my opinion, and I may say this is not a random opinion, I will be glad to refer you to a several hundred page book in which it is documented. The Great Depression was produced by a failure of government, by a failure of monetary policy, 
It was produced by a failure of the Federal Reserve System to act in accordance with the intentions of those who established it. It was produced by a failure of the Federal Reserve System despite the presence of knowledge on the part of many of the people in the system about the right course of action. In conversation with William F. Buckley, Friedman even claimed that Keynes himself would have rejected the so-called Keynesian revolution. Keynes himself was very much of a scientist. I think he was wrong on various things, but he certainly had a scientific approach. And indeed, I've always regarded it as a great tragedy that Keynes died when he did, because one of his great capacities was flexibility. Yes. He could shift as times changed. Had Keynes been alive, what is called Keynesian economics would never have been carried to the extremes. That is, had he lived beyond 1946, Keynesian economics would never have been carried to the extremes that it was carried. In his, the last article of his he ever wrote, which was published posthumously, he warned the economics profession at large that there was much virtue in old truths and that they should not be carried away by the new things. And there's no doubt that he wasn't at that point a Keynesian in the sense in which it was then interpreted. Yeah, in fact, he, he went so far as to make complimentary observations about Mr. Hayek's book, didn't he? Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Keynes was a, he was a, he was a great economist. We mustn't, uh, it seems to me you must avoid uh, uh, denigrating the man because some of his disciples carried some right. of his arguments much too far. He was a great economist. He wrote very important works before his general theory, which is the work that uh, got him his notoriety. And I think that had he lived longer, he would have led a retreat from the extreme position he took there. How did Kaletsky evaluate the policies that were put into effect by governments in Western Europe and North America after 1945? Kaletsky was having been one of the, the, the leading proponents of uh, full employment policies and laid out the necessary fiscal and monetary conditions for full employment during the war, Kletsky became uh, quite disillusioned with what actually happened, particularly the rise of McCarthyism and anti-communism in Western Europe and North America, which uh, he, he he saw at first hand because uh, he was working at the UN when the UN authorities allowed the FBI to have access to the UN premises, you know, premises which were supposed to be under uh, diplomatic immunity. They, uh, the FBI, ostensibly were reporting on American citizens, only on American citizens, but actually they were reporting on many, many more people. And I know this because uh, both Kaletsky and Langer were uh, at the UN and uh, I have their FBI files. And there's lots of stuff there of how they were observed. Kaletsky uh, came to the conclusion that, yes, there was a, a period of high employment, but this was achieved through the arms race and through the taxation of the workers. So workers actually didn't benefit all that much from the high employment. Their living standards did not rise very much. Rationing continued after the war. 
in the UK, it certainly continued uh, right through until the mid-1950s. Kalecki believed that the high employment was achieved through military Keynesianism, through the arms race, through wars, which were paid for by higher taxation, which was not necessarily all that progressive. And it, uh, in fact, not only was it not particularly, this situation was not particularly uh, progressive, but it was actually damaging to the economies of those countries which came to be dependent on arms production. And he he highlighted the fact that the economies that really benefited from the situation were Germany and Japan, which were forbidden to produce arms or had their arms productions restricted after the war and therefore had no other alternative. Uh, their, their businesses had no other alternative but to engage in civilian uh, production, develop new technology and so on. So he was very, very critical of the Cold War and the kind of high employment that it created. Good evening, my fellow Americans. In his final broadcast as American president, Dwight Eisenhower issued a famous warning about the peacetime growth of the war economy. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. How to do this? Three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. What relationship did Kalecki have with the post-war communist authorities in his native Poland? And what proposals did he make for the management of a socialist economic system? His relationship with the post-war uh, communist authorities, in the first place, was uh, started off being quite sympathetic. He was sympathetic with the idea of post-war reconstruction, stabilising the economy, introducing land reform, reconstructing the economy under under state control. But he really 
disapproved of the attempts to industrialize in an accelerated fashion during the Stalinist period. Uh, he pointed out that if you do have these kinds of grandiose industrialization pushes, as happened in the late 40s and early 50s in Poland, you end up uh, creating shortages of consumption goods. What uh, the planned economy should do, what a centrally planned economy should do, is make a priority of consumption, because that way you maintain the confidence of the working class in the socialist system. And what happened after... Kalecki was not in Poland during the, the, the Stalinist period. The Stalinist period effectively came to an end in 1956 with a change of communist leadership in Poland and in the Soviet Union with Khrushchev's uh, speech to the 20th Party Congress denouncing uh, Stalin. But what happened afterwards was that there was a tendency for the communist authorities to go back to grand industrial industrialization schemes. And during the 1960s, this gave rise to recurrent, what were known as meat crises, essentially shortages of basic consumption goods. And Kalecki criticised this uh, heavily. And he, interestingly enough, this was a different angle to that of Oscar Lange and his followers. Oscar Lange believed that you could resolve the problem uh, simply by allowing prices to rise, by central planners using their control of prices uh, flexibly to erase prices to balance out supply and demand in consumer goods markets. Kletsky pointed out that the uh, you know the problem wasn't one of prices. The problem was one of overambitious investment. Not only overambitious investment, but investment that was directed too much towards heavy industry, whereas uh, you needed to direct uh, investment to what workers actually wanted, workers and their families actually wanted to consume. And uh, this became uh, something of an irritant to the communist authorities. The economic problems got worse, but so also did the, did the political problems because there was rising discontent through the 1960s. And in 1968, the communist authorities tried to head this off by setting up a, a campaign arguing that the real problem were, were the leftovers of the Stalinist leadership in the Communist Party and uh, that these uh, Stalinist hangovers, a lot of them were Jewish and uh, therefore the problem was one of a minority in the party and in society who uh, were not fully committed to Poland because they were Jewish. So there are anti-Semitic purges. A lot of good, loyal Polish citizens and Polish socialists were expelled from Poland. Kalecki by then was 
elderly and was actually um, so famous, you know, he couldn't uh, really be touched. But his uh, research groups were dismantled. He became very, very disillusioned. At one time, he believed that, you know, must have been the, the CIA behind this uh, anti-Semitic purge because it was so obviously not not in the interests of Polish socialism. And uh, shortly after that, he he had a heart attack and uh, he died in 1970. So he died, I think, rather uh, in rather sad, disillusioned uh, circumstances. But I think he, he left a legacy and a critique of, of capitalism and socialism, uh, which is certainly, you know, worth coming back to because, you know, I do think he, he understood uh, how business works much, much better than academic economists do and much, much better than many economists do today. Many thanks to Jan Toporowski for that guide to the ideas of Michael Kaletsky. You can also read his essay about Kaletsky and the politics of full employment on the Jacobin website. <laughs>